This is Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and this is what he pens. And he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up to him in order to test him, and they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great living God stands forever. You may be seated. If you look at verse 1 there in your Bible, we see Jesus traveling to Jerusalem. You've heard me say numerous times over the weeks that Jesus is now heading south. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Everything is pointed toward the cross. Jesus has fixed his face like flint toward Jerusalem and all the ministry that takes place from Caesarea Philippi where Jesus was just several weeks back and everything moving forward is pointed toward Jerusalem, pointed toward the last Passover where Jesus subsequently would give his life on a Roman cross as a payment and a sacrifice for sin. Jesus is traveling here. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Mark writes, and he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Let me just kind of help you put the geography here together. I, I don't, unfortunately. I should have a map for you, but, but I don't. But if you can just kind of think, and I'll make it easy for you uh, to process in your minds here. Jesus and his disciples had been in the region of Galilee. Okay, this was kind of hometown for Jesus. If you make a little circle there with your fingers and you want to look at it, just to your left hand uh, there on the west side of that circle, that circle being the Sea of Galilee, would be Galilee. That's where Jesus, uh, that's where most of Jesus' life and ministry took place. That was, that was home base, so to speak. It's where Jesus had been. He had been in the region of Galilee, probably more specifically Capernaum, and now Jesus and his disciples pack up and they head south to the region of Judea. Now, Again, remember, this is all on the way to Jerusalem. We're only weeks away from the final Passover here. We're only weeks, if not less, away from the cross here. But it's interesting to note that Jesus did not travel back through Samaria. Samaria would have been just south of Galilee. Okay, Just south of Samaria would be Judea. Jerusalem is in Judea. So Galilee... Samaria just south, and then Judea, where Jesus is heading. But Jesus did not head back through Samaria here. I I oftentimes ask you, if you ask yourself questions when you're studying Scripture, I oftentimes ask myself questions, and the question I asked here is, well, why didn't Jesus do that? 
Why didn't Jesus take the easier route here and just continue uh, heading on due south there to Judea, to Jerusalem, right through Samaria? Why did he cut out Samaria, which is sandwiched right there between Galilee and Judea? And I would tell you this is intentional. The reason behind that is because Samaritans didn't mind Jews traveling north. If you were traveling away from Judea, if you were traveling away from uh, Jerusalem and away from the temple there, you would have been a welcome guest in Samaria. But if you were traveling through Samaria toward Jerusalem, toward the temple, you would not have been received. That would have been resented by the Samaritans. An example of this, of this is uh, Jesus when he uh, traveled through Samaria earlier in John chapter 4. You'll remember that chapter. This is where Jesus encounters the woman at the well, right? And right after Jesus encounters this woman, she brings him back to her village. And this woman tells, tells the village, tells everyone she knows about this man who, who told her everything she'd ever done. Jesus is welcome there in that instance. But later, headed south toward Jerusalem, a Samaritan village refused to receive Jesus and his disciples. I, remember, uh, I mentioned this last week. This, this was the particular Samaritan village of which a couple of Jesus' disciples asked Jesus, should we, should we call down fire from heaven upon them? Well, that was in Samaria. And the reason that Jesus and his disciples were not welcomed or received that time is because they were headed south. As a matter of fact, Luke tells us in his gospel, Luke chapter 9, that the village refused to receive Jesus, quote, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So, what Jesus does here, he's been in Galilee, he crosses over the, the Jordan River to the east, down through Perea, and then he'll cross back over the Jordan River again, uh, sidestepping Samaria and back into Judea on his way to Jerusalem. So, you wanted to know that this morning, right? Everybody just nod your head. Well, you got what you asked for, all right? You got what you asked for. Notice again the crowds here in verse 1. Notice again that Jesus is teaching them. That was his custom. Jesus was a teacher. He was always teaching. Everywhere he went, uh, Jesus was teaching. Whether it be the crowds or his disciples or going toe-to-toe with the religious leaders of the day, Jesus was always teaching. I would submit to you that you are also always teaching, Christian. You have a world that is looking at your life. They're looking at how you speak, how you act. They're looking at your motivations, they're looking at who you spend time with, where you go, what you hold, uh, uh, the decisions you make, uh, all that's being watched uh, by a lost and dying world. And so uh, let me just remind us all that we are also always teaching, okay? You're teaching in what you do and you're also teaching in what you do not do. Just think about the implications of that. Look at verse 2 here. So Jesus is traveling toward Jerusalem. Verse 2 picks back up here. This is Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees. Now, whether this is the case or not, it almost sounds like the Pharisees step in here and steal the moment. I mean, here Jesus is teaching the crowds, and the Pharisees, who you can imagine, aren't more than an earshot away. I mean, they are very astute. They're very aware of the fact that Jesus is in town. Jesus is not more than an eyeshot or an earshot away from the Pharisees. Here's Jesus teaching the crowd, and it almost seems as though the Pharisees just te- or step in here while he's teaching. They step up to the microphone here with a question. And notice Mark tells us the Pharisees came up in order to test him, and they asked him this question. Here's the question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
Okay, that's the question. The rest of the text this morning through uh, verse 12 is going to deal with this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, uh, before we open up Jesus' answer to that question, how he deals with this question, it's important that you note here that the word test, the word test, perazzo, it means to tempt or to try or to subject to trial. To be clear, the Pharisees' question was far from honest. They are not asking Jesus an honest question. They, 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 they absolutely know his answer before he asks, or before they ask. What they're trying to do is they're trying to bait Jesus into giving a self-incriminating answer that would arouse opposition against him. They're trying to trap Jesus in his words. And this is not the first, and it will not be the last time that the Pharisees try to trap Jesus verbally. Matter of fact, when we get to chapter 12, just two chapters from now, we'll see them try to do it three more times. They'll try to back Jesus into a verbal trap. They'll try to do it over uh, the, the subject of theology. They'll try to do it over the subject of politics. Uh, but they, they are trying to get Jesus to give some sort of self-incriminating answer. You see, the issue of marriage, more specifically, the issue of divorce, was as controversial in Jesus' day as it is in our present day. And so the question the Pharisees wanted answered by Jesus is, where did Jesus stand on the issue? Where did Jesus stand on the issue? Was he conservative or was he liberal? Was he strict or was he lax on the issue? You see, the way the Pharisees even framed their question clearly revealed where they stood. Again, this was not an honest uh, question. Perhaps the Pharisees thought that uh, Jesus might, might take sides here uh, in, in this dispute and potentially split the ranks of his followers. Or, or perhaps Jesus would say something in his answer that would offend Herod Antipas, just like John the Baptist had done, which cost him his what? His head, Right? Now, think with me here, geography again. Jesus and his disciples haven't traveled down south through Samaria. They've gone east of the Jordan River. They are in the region of Perea now, which interestingly enough is under the jurisdiction of Herod. Herod had married his half-niece Herodias. And so perhaps the Pharisees thought, well, maybe we'll get Jesus to say something that will anger Herod, and Herod will just step in and take him out. The bottom line is the Pharisees were trying to trick Jesus into taking sides, but Jesus eludes their trap, as we'll see in the text, and he appeals rather to God's divine intention for marriage than he does answer the question about divorce. So to understand the Pharisees' question, or their test, so to speak, uh, concerning the lawfulness of divorce, we have to look back at the Old Testament. Keep your, your finger or a pen or something there in Mark chapter 10, and uh, turn back to the Old Testament and find the book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Old Testament. Uh, find the book of Deuteronomy, specifically chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24 And in just a moment here, we'll look at the first four verses together. Let me give you a little context here before we read. There were two rival schools of thought in Jesus' day as to the interpretation of a particular word that Moses uses in Deuteronomy chapter 24. The word, we'll see it here in just a second, is the word indecency, at least as it is uh, 
in the ESV translation. But there were two rival schools of thought as to the interpretation of indecency that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Both schools of thought were named after the rabbi that espoused them. So uh, one rabbi was Rabbi Shammai. The other rabbi was Rabbi Hillel. Okay? We'll talk more about them here in just a second. Just file that away. Let's look at the text here in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Moses writes here, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some, here's the word, indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that, your, that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Okay, that's the teaching. That's what the Pharisees, here in our text, Mark chapter 10, go ahead and turn back there just so you're not confused. That's the issue at hand. That's the interpretation the Pharisees are asking Jesus for. They want to know, Jesus, what do you think about what Moses said? Are we permitted to give our wives a certificate of divorce and just send them away, or are we not? Now, let me bring you back to those two rabbis here for just a second. Rabbi Shammai, okay, his school of thought, what he taught was the conservative road. He interpreted the indecency in Deuteronomy chapter 4 as meaning some form of grave marital offense or infidelity. So it was, it was very, uh, very confined. Indecency means infidelity. Okay, That's what Rabbi Shammai taught. Rabbi Hillel, on the other hand, took the liberal road and interpreted the indecency in Deuteronomy chapter 4 as meaning anything the husband did not like or approve of. So, let me give you some examples here. According to the Hillel school of thought, a husband could divorce his wife for talking too loud. Okay? A husband could divorce his wife for burning his food for speaking in a manner that he deemed to be disrespectful. A lot of subjectiveness in there. A husband could divorce his wife and send her away for embarrassing him in any way. Or just because she seemed less desirable in her husband's eyes because he had become more enamored by the beauty of another woman and found his wife to be less beautiful in comparison. All of these and an endless list of other trivial offenses were justifiable grounds for divorce, according to Rabbi Hillel. And so, the question the Pharisees want answered is, what side do you take, Jesus? Where do you fall out on the issue? What say you? What do you teach concerning this matter? It should be noted that while the question posed to Jesus had nothing to do with the issue of remarriage, I would submit that that was really the crux of the problem. 
That's really what the Pharisees were, were getting at here is, is remarriage lawful? If I divorce my wife, if I send her away, can I remarry? And can I do it saving face? You see, the Pharisees wanted easy grounds for, divorce, for the divorce of their marriage, for the dissolution of their marriage, and a guilt-free license to remarry. That's the issue at hand here. So, uh, all that said, uh, that brings us to point number one, your outline. You ready to take notes? All right, here we go. Number one, uh, there are four truths that I want us to see this morning as we work our way through the remainder of the text. Uh, number one, write this down, is God-designed marriage. Okay, we just need to settle that issue God-designed marriage. Okay, God's word is the authority when it comes to the subject matter of marriage. You see, if marriage were of human origin, then human beings would have the right to set it aside or to think any which way they wanted to about it. But since God created, since God instituted, since God designed marriage, he and he alone can speak into it. God has told us that marriage will not be, should not be dispensed of or dissolved until this life is over, till death do us part. Nor can marriage be regulated according to the human whims. You see, marriage as an institution is subject to the rules and the regulations that God has set down for it. God's word speaks authoritatively on the issue. You know, I, as I look around our culture today, and I, I would encourage you to be a, an individual who, uh, who is discerning of the culture and who uh, thinks about what is going on and why is it going on and how does the world around me think uh, because how the world around us thinks is connected, or acts rather, is connected to how it thinks, right? You do what you do because you think what you think, right? Uh, and so be observant uh, as, you, as you look at the culture around you. But the culture around us, uh, the number one priority of the culture around us right now is not fidelity in marriage. You know what the number one priority of our culture is? Happiness. Personal happiness. One of the greatest uh, tragedies in our culture is the elevation of one's own self-fulfillment as the ultimate good. You know why that's a tragedy? Because the elevation of self-fulfillment as the ultimate good functionally reduces God's word to an optional guidebook just to meet one's emotional needs. I take what I want, I discard what I don't want. I take what I want, I discard what I don't want. You see, God's word is not to be used like that. The inerrant Bible, uh, according to our culture, is replaced with a humanistic value system. But we must know that God is not sitting in heaven, biting his fingernails, so to speak, this morning, over the issue of our happiness. That is not God's pinnacle concern. God is not all up in arms at this very moment about our happiness. Now, does God care about our happiness? He does. But that is not his chief concern. That is not his pinnacle concern. That's what the world thinks. Right? God wants me to be happy. God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. Therefore, God must approve of my actions. No. What Jesus is looking for is obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll what? You'll obey me. If you love me, you'll obey me. 
Marriage is a covenant before God. You see, our culture, for the most part, views marriage as a temporary agreement, a contract between two individuals rather than a permanent, abiding covenant. Uh, consider for a moment the difference between a contract and a covenant. I mean, we live in a society that's built around contracts. I mean, think about it for a second here. Uh, Verizon wants to buy you out of AT&T. Spectrum would love to buy you, uh, you know, out of your current provider. They'll offer you $500 if you cut out this, uh, this provider and you go with them. I mean, that's, that's the way our culture views contracts, right? It's very whimsical. I kind of do what I want. I can swing between this one and that one. Unfortunately, some view the marriage relationship as nothing more than a contract that can be entered into and then broken with little cost and relatively few consequences. You see, a contract by nature is an agreement that is made in suspicion. The parties don't trust each other, and as a result, they set limits on their responsibility in the relationship. It's what a contract outlines. It outlines your responsibility and my responsibility. Here's what you will do. Here is what I will do. Here is what we have agreed upon. The reason that we put our name, we sign our name on the dotted line, is because it, that, that is entered into in suspicion. I don't know if you're going to keep your word, and you don't know if I'm going to keep my word. And so we've got to have something binding here that says you agree to this and I agree to that. A contract is oftentimes an agreement made in suspicion. You see, the parties don't trust each other, and as a result, they set limits. A contract can be easily canceled or cast aside on the basis of personal whims or weaknesses. A contract is conditional, right? As soon as one party fails to fulfill their obligations, then the other party is free from the commitments of the contract. If you fail to uphold your word, then I can get out. I can walk. You see, but to view marriage as a contract is, is to say this. Now that I've signed, what do I get? If we view marriage as nothing more than a divine contract, what we're saying is, now that I've signed on the dotted line, what do I get? What's, what's in it for me? The focus is self-centered. It's about receiving. Now, think about a covenant on the other hand. Covenant is an agreement that is made in trust. The parties love each other and they put no limits on their responsibility in the relationship. A covenant can't be easily canceled, broken, or cast aside because what has bound you together is not just a piece of signed paper, but the Lord Himself. The two become one. That's a covenant. A covenant is unconditional, it's not altered, it's not changed, it's not discarded because of a failure to meet expectations. To view marriage as a covenant before God and before each other is to say this, I am giving myself to you unreservedly, unconditionally, without reservation. You see, the focus in a covenant is laying down your life in sacrificial service to another. A covenant demands the death of two wills and the birth of one. I becomes we only to be separated when one precedes the other in death. You see the difference there between a contract and a covenant? And the world that we live in sees marriage as nothing more than a whimsical contract. As soon as you stop meeting my needs, I'm out. Marriage is an earthly representation of a heavenly reality. As soon as the Lord Jesus dispenses himself 
of his people. As soon as the Lord Jesus reneges as the bridegroom on his bride, then we can renege on our marriages. But friends, that will never happen. That will never happen. And our marriages are meant, though they are imperfect, every single one of our marriages, every single time I sit down in my office uh, and either engage in pre-marriage counseling or marriage counseling it, uh, with a, an individual or a couple, which I'm engaged in both right now, pre-marriage counseling and marriage counseling, without fail, I make it very clear that the only thing that separates you from me is what side of the table we're sitting on. The seeds of every sin under the sun reside in my heart. I'm an imperfect husband. Just ask my wife. Ask my children. Again, we're always teaching, right? I'm an imperfect husband. I have failed to meet her expectations time and time and time again. But that's not grounds to toss the towel in and to call it quits. No, we repent All sin is first and foremost vertical, and then it's horizontal, right? We repent, and we seek forgiveness, and we keep on keeping on. Why? Because my marriage, though it is woefully flawed, is a picture of a heavenly divine reality. And that heavenly divine reality is that Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, will be faithful to his people until the end. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 13, 5, speaking on behalf of Jesus, says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What a promise. What a promise. God's design for marriage has not changed. God has not conceded his design for marriage to a redesign by man. Friends, marriage is holy ground. God designed marriage. The second thing I want you to take note of this morning, write this down. Number two is that God is grieved by divorce. God is grieved by divorce. We see this in verses five through nine. We'll look at the text here in just a second. Malachi, chapter two, we won't turn there for the sake of time this morning, but write this down in in the margin there of your notes. You can look at it later. Malachi chapter two, verses 13 through 16 speaks to the fact that divorce grieves the heart of God. As a matter of fact, there is even stronger language used in Malachi chapter 2. God himself says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. I hate divorce. A couple things that I want you to notice here is that divorce is always the result of sin. Divorce is always the result of sin. Friends, what if you and I abandoned the idea that the problems and the weaknesses in our marriage, which are numerous, the problems and the weaknesses in my marriage, they're caused not by a lack of information, they're caused not by a lack of dedication or communication, instead they are caused by a warring within human hearts. It's sin. Sin is the culprit. Matter of fact, I uh, was speaking to a couple just this last week uh, and encouraged them. Listen, what is the, what is the greatest, um, what's the greatest tragedy 
in your marriage. The greatest tragedy in your marriage is sin, not each other. You see, what happens so often is, is we, we get into conflict in marriage. And every marriage, uh, sooner rather than later, uh, experiences conflict, right? That's, that's because I want what I want and you want what you want. Conflict uh, just arises because what I want and you want are different. We don't have conflict when what I want and my spouse wants are the same, right? No, we're the best of friends. Conflict in marriage is the result of wants, dreams, desires, wishes, preoccupations that I have in my heart coming in, uh, careening into contact with, colliding into, crashing into wants, dreams, wishes that my wife has. That's where conflict comes in, right? The greatest peril in your marriage is not each other. The greatest peril in your marriage is sin, And if we will spend more time going after sin in our marriage than each other, we'll actually get somewhere. The problem so often is is that we forget the sin issue uh, that actually uh, was the spark that started the, the fire in our marriage, and we just become so bent on winning that we claw each other's eyes out. Right? I mean, I forgot what even started the argument last week. All I know is that this week, I want to be right. I want to win. I want to win. Divorce is always the result of sin. Sin is the problem. The radiant woman whose finger you slipped that wedding ring on, men, she's a sinner. She's a sinner. If you're married... Uh, Lean over and tell your spouse real quick. Just uh, do it with a smile on your face, though. But if you're married, just lean over and just like a sweet nothing, just kind of whisper into your spouse's ear, you're a great sinner. (laughs) This is two-way, right? This isn't one spouse leaning over to the other, you're a great sinner. No, it's like, we are great sinners. That's the reality. That's the reality. Ladies, the man who offered you a vow of perfect faithfulness and lifelong sacrifice, he's a sinner. All right? We're sinners. Husbands, you're sinners. Wives, you're sinners. Guess what sinners produce, by the way? Little sinners. Okay? I have the privilege oftentimes, it's, it's good to be able to, in a, in a message like this, it is relatively heavy. I, I am glad that we can, uh, hopefully we can balance the serious nature of the subject matter while at the same recognizing our own sinful hearts. And we're not laughing at sin. Sin is never a laughable matter. God never laughs at our sin. It is our sin that sent Jesus to Calvary. But at the same time, we can realize that we live in the middle of the already and the not yet, where God has begun a work in us, but it has not yet been brought to its perfect completion. But I have the privilege of going to the hospital oftentimes and uh, holding those precious little ones. I mean, two perfect eyes, two, two ears, that little nose there that you just want to, like, touch and nuzzle and... And uh, they're warm, and those little toes peek out of the, the, the blanket there. And I mean, I just look into that little, that little one's eyes there, and I think to myself, I behold, wow, image bearer. Image bearer. This little one has been created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them after his own likeness. And the second thought that comes flying to mind is little sinner. Little sinner. 
Beautiful image bearer, little sinner. And guess what little sinners grow up to be? Big sinners, right? And we carry all that into our marriages, right? We carry all that into our marriages. Dealing with your sin problem is the key to a thriving marriage. When we apply the gospel to our sin, it gives us hope in our marriages. There is, a, there is hope. Even if you are here this morning, and I know, I know that I know that I know that I know in a congregation our size, there are struggling marriages in here this morning. Matter of fact, there may be some of you who have already tuned me out, and I would beg of you, give me your ear for just a few more minutes. The gospel is the answer to the problem of sin in your life and in your marriage. The gospel is always the answer. We need to be hating our sin. Thomas Watson once said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. Until we know the real problem, we'll never savor the real solution. The real problem is not your wife. The real problem is not your husband. The real problem is always sin. Sin, sin, sin. You wake up every morning next to a mirror that is your husband or your wife, if you're married, that reflects your sin back to you. It's not always easy, but how gracious of God. How gracious of God to give us a spouse, to give me a wife who reflects my sin back to me, that I can repent of it and grow and change. Seek to become a man that pleases God and a husband that loves my wife well. You see, being married forces you to deal with your character issues that you might not otherwise have to deal with. And that's a really good thing. That's a really good thing. Sin is always the issue. It's always the culprit. The second thing that I want you to notice here is that divorce is never God's perfect plan. Divorce is never a part of God's perfect plan. It is only, only a part of God's permissive plan. This is where we pick back up in our text here. Specifically, verses 6 through 9. So we, we've seen Jesus' travel. We've seen Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees in verse 2. The question raised was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus says, now what did Moses say to you? We already looked back at Deuteronomy chapter 24. They were wanting to know on which side does he, does he fall here. And here's where we pick back up here in the text, in verses 6 through 9. What Jesus does here is he stops the Pharisees right in their tracks. Look at your Bible. Jesus replies to them, and he says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. You see, initially, divorce was inconceivable. When, when God made man and woman, no allowance was made for divorce. There's no speak of divorce in Genesis. Divorce, both then and now, is a departure from God's original design for marriage. It's a concession for man's hard-heartedness. If there is divorce, and there is, it's not because God intended it to be that way. It is rather because we are sinful. God made a concession for human weakness in divorce. The purpose for the divorce certificate was to serve as a deterrent to hasty, frivolous, thoughtless actions by a husband. 
All right? God has husbands right here in the, in the crosshairs. It was meant to testify, this, this divorce certificate was meant to testify to a woman's freedom from her marital obligation to the husband who divorced her and to protect her from being thought of as an adulteress. It declared that the end of her marriage was caused by something less than a violation to her marriage vow, which kept her from being stoned, by the way. The Pharisees interpreted God's concession as a privileged right, so they could put their wives away and serve their lusts all while saving face. Right? I'll just... Just give her a certificate of divorce. That way she doesn't get stoned to death for adultery. That satisfies that. And now I can move on with my sinful lust and I can save face in the meantime. You see how devious the human heart is? Notice how Jesus says nothing about divorce here, but instead he speaks to the institution of marriage. What does Jesus do? He takes the Pharisees right back to Genesis 2.24. I mean, look at verses 6 through 8. Jesus says, but from the beginning, God made them male and female, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. You see, Jesus pointed the Pharisees right back to God's blueprint, his original design for marriage. You see, marriage isn't a contract of temporary convenience, which brings me to my next point, and look at verse 9 here. Marriage was intended to be permanent. Marriage was intended to be permanent. Look at verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Let not man separate. It's interesting to note here that the word translated man in your Bible. Look at your Bible there, verse 9. The word translated man, let not man separate, it's the word anthropos. It's not the word that necessarily distinguishes between male and female, but rather the word that distinguishes between human and divine. There is anthropos man and there is theos God. Okay? This is the word anthropos here. Not distinguishing male and female, not distinguishing gender here, but distinguishing the difference between the human and divine. The contrast is this. If God joined the man and woman in marriage, then man has no right to separate what God has joined. Since God created this sacred union, which was his sacred purpose to display the unbreakable firmness of his commitment and love for his people, then it simply does not lie within man's rights to destroy what God has created. Let not man separate what God has joined. You see, if the most ultimate meaning of marriage is to represent the unbreakable covenant love between Christ and his church, which it is, then no human being has the right to break that covenant. We're going to talk about grace here in just a few minutes, okay? I want to balance the message, but no human being has the right to break the bond that God has joined. Number three, if you're taking notes, write this down. God's word governs. Divorce. God's word governs divorce. Look at verses 10 and 12 there in your Bible. 
This actually takes place after the conversation. Presumably, uh, Jesus and his disciples have retired back to a home for further teaching, which is Jesus' customary way of teaching his disciples. He would pull them away after the fact. Oftentimes, this teaching would take place in a home or in a, in a, uh, in a setting that was without distractions, away from the crowds, and Jesus would oftentimes interpret his teaching or teach further to his disciples. This is what Jesus says to his disciples alone in verses 10 through 12. Mark writes, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. Teach us. Help us understand, Jesus. And he, Jesus, said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her, or I'm sorry, if he divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, uh, I just now looked at my watch, uh, and I hope you haven't looked at it yet. Uh, but now I just encourage you to look at your watch, and you'll see where we're at. So uh, here's, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, God's word governs divorce, okay? Uh, you can go back. My, my, my manuscript will be online uh, in the next handful of days, hopefully, and uh, you can see what I have written here. But there are two, two exceptions or two exemptions that the New Testament uh, appears to give us for uh, divorce, for divorce on a biblical ground. Uh, those two reasons or those two exep- uh, exemptions or exceptions would be for sexual immorality, infidelity in a marriage, That would be one ground. The other would be desertion, that that one spouse, presumably an unbeliever, just leaves their spouse. Well, then we have to answer the question, well, what does the spouse, what what are the rights of the spouse who stayed? What what, what are the rights for the the faithful spouse? And uh, so I just want you to know God's word governs divorce. We can't just break marriage any way we want to. There are two New Testament grounds for which divorce uh, seems to be permitted. But let me say this. Though divorce is permitted in those two instances, divorce is never encouraged in the New Testament. It's never encouraged. You know what is encouraged? Repentance. A recommitment to faithfulness. Reconciliation. All those things, over and over and over and over again, are taught in the New Testament. So, though there is an allowance for divorce in those two cases, and a lot needs to be said and could be said about that, I wish we had more time, we don't, uh, but just because those allowances are there does not mean that they are encouraged. As a matter of fact, they are not. We don't ever encourage here at the chapel. My pastoral staff, our elders, we do not encourage couples to seek divorce. We encourage reconciliation. We always encourage reconciliation. Now, uh, number four, and we'll try to land the plane here pretty, pretty quickly, is God's grace covers divorce. God's grace covers divorce. Number one, God designed marriage. Number two, God is grieved by divorce. Number three, God governs divorce. And then lastly here, God's grace covers divorce. While God's grace should never be used as a license for divorce, it certainly is wide enough to cover divorce. Okay? It's important that we know that. My intention this morning is to, up, uh, is to uphold, to affirm, and even to esteem the sanctity of the marriage covenant. But at the same time, I want to point us to the cross where Jesus Christ was crucified to cleanse us from all sin, including the sin of divorce, including the sin of adultery, including the sin of marital infidelity, and to point us there. Though God's grace is never a license to sin, 
God's grace is always wide enough to accommodate our sin. You know, I think about the sense of guilt and shame and a failure and rejection that comes along with divorce. Oftentimes there's an accompanying feeling of loneliness and betrayal and abandonment and helplessness. Divorced people can oftentimes even, even feel like they are relegated to the outfield of the church as if they have a scarlet D on their shirt. And that's because we have a hard time mixing grace with truth. We oftentimes treat those who are divorced as an anomaly that we don't exactly know what to do with. And I would encourage us not to do that. We want to uphold the sanctity of the marriage institution with a settled conviction, but at the same time understand that God's grace covers the sin of divorce. I want to be compassionate to those whose, uh, divorce, or whose marriages have ended in divorce without compromising the high standards of Scripture. You see, in a culture that sees marriages crumbling regularly and the sacred vows of marriages so easily dishonored, God's people need to be immovable in their conviction concerning the sacredness of the marriage relationship. Like a concrete pillar in the midst of turbulent waters, we need to commit to the permanence of marriage regardless of our own personal experiences. Here's our great hope. No matter our marriage status, no matter if by God's sheer grace, and that's what it is, we have been successful or if we have failed in our marriage, no matter if we have been faithful or faithless, Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, who will be faithful till the end, his grace is sufficient. His mercy and grace cover our every iniquity. Let me do this. Uh, let me just give you a couple practical thoughts here, okay? This, this potentially may be worth the price of the sermon, okay? Close your Bible for a few seconds here. Listen to me. If you're single, if you're here this morning and you're single, don't live like you're married. Okay, if you're single... Don't live like you're married. Now, the converse of that is true. If you're here this morning and you're married, don't live like you're single. Okay? If you're single, don't live like you're married. And if you're married, don't live like you're single. Next, commit to absolute fidelity and faithfulness in your marriage. No matter what has happened to this point, from this moment forward, commit to absolute faithfulness in your marriage. Just go ahead and commit to it. Here's a few practical ways to pursue oneness in your marriage as a believer. Daily pursue Christ in your marriage. Marriages don't just crumble in a day, right? They're oftentimes connected to our relationship to Christ being eroded. Okay? Commit to pursue Christ in your marriage. Secondly, pray for your marriage. It's a question that I ask in every marriage counseling session. Are you praying for your marriage? You know what the sad answer is oftentimes? No or not like I need to. Pray for your marriage. Invest in your marriage. Go to conferences, buy books, get DVD series. There's lots of good information out there, lots of good biblical teaching. Invest in your marriage. Uh, have accountability in your marriage. Have someone that knows about your marriage, your marriage the good, the bad, the ugly. And oftentimes we struggle in quiet desperation. No one knows there's a problem until the problem has reached ahead and we don't know how to fix it. Let people into your life. Know and be known. 
We're all alike. We all struggle with the same sin. Let people in. Have accountability in your marriage. Keep short accounts in your marriage. Okay, don't let stuff fester. Don't give Satan a foothold, right? Keep short accounts. Forgive one another. Often, daily, daily, humble yourself. Ask for forgiveness. Commit to working on difficulties together. Don't just sweep things under the rug. Friends, stuff that we put in the junk drawer is there the next time we open it. Right? And we all have one, right? It's right to the you know, right of our refrigerator. It's the junk drawer. It's the catch-all. Everything that's in there is going to be in it the next time I open it. We've got to deal with that stuff, okay? Deal with the stuff in your junk drawer. Commit to working out difficulties in your marriage. Remember that love covers a multitude of sin. Apply the gospel to your marriage. If Christ can forgive me, then he can certainly forgive you, my spouse. Okay? Men, let me get your attention real quick. Give me your eyeballs. Be a learner of your wife. Commit to being a learner of your wife. Study her. Take notes. Write things down. Use that as a way to pray for her. And what you'll learn is as you take notes, you'll hear things in February that your wife wants in December. When she's walking through Target and she says, that magic bullet looks so great, I'd love to have one of those. And then you're sitting around in December thinking, what in the world am I going to get my wife for Christmas? Write it down in February. And then you know she wants a magic bullet. And so for Pete's sake, go buy her a magic bullet. All right? Be a learner of your spouse. Fellas, if you and I think that we can exhaust the knowledge of our spouses, we have lost our ever-loving minds. All right? Be a learner. Be a learner. Our wives are more complex than a thousand lifetimes could afford us to learn. All right? Two more thoughts here, then we're done. Number one, if you're contemplating divorce, just remember that God's grace is sufficient. Don't do it. Let me beg you, don't do it. For the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ, don't do it. For the sake of future generations and your children, don't do it. God's grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. Lastly this morning, if you are divorced, rest in God's grace and seek to glorify him in your current state. All right, you're not relegated to the outfield of the church. If you are divorced, repent of whatever sin was there. Seek God's grace and his mercy and pursue him, love him, and serve him all the days of your life. All right? That's a lot, isn't it? And now I'll leave all that with you and the Holy Spirit for the next 168 hours. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, So much here. Uh, so much beneath the surface, the surface that we have not had the time or the ability to discuss. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would just impress what we have discussed upon the hearts of your people. And uh, Lord, that you would encourage them. I pray that uh, those here this morning that are struggling would find uh, hope in the gospel. Lord, I pray that those who are sitting here this morning who have uh, been divorced in their past, uh, Lord, that you would help them see grace and mercy and forgiveness full and free. Lord, that uh, your grace covers a multitude of sin, even divorce, and that we can please you, we can honor you, we can walk with you, and we can serve uh, together in your local church. Help us to be faithful to our marriages, Lord, uh, in every circumstance. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, who will never leave his bride. Amen.